0: said. Amen. Amen. Let's give a round of applause to the Lord for that. We can have a seat. It is encouraging to be with you and to worship God together today. Uh, As I mentioned, we started a new series last Sunday in 1 Peter. I want to encourage you to find a Bible and uh, turn there. If you don't have one, there may be one in front of you. The words we're going to read are also going to be up on the screen this morning. We're calling this series, Working Through the Book of Peter." Uh, different. We're talking about living as foreigners in a world that is not our home, and a, and a key idea that I mentioned last week, but I want to I want to say again today because I think it's really important for us to kind of wrap our minds around. And, and Peter talks about it over and over and over again in his in his letter. Is this: you live here, you live here, but you are not from here. And this is an, again a men, an idea that's mentioned over and over. What what he means when he says this? These are my words, but the, kind of summarizing what he says, but what this means is that when you entered into a relationship with the Lord, that you died to yourself and that you were reborn, you were born from above, we talked about last week, and and when that happened, you became a citizen of another country, another kingdom, God's country, God's kingdom. You were born in a different place. Your birthplace changed on your birth certificate. And the way that this works in God's country isn't like human countries, right? In human countries, we have borders, and we have one location, and it's marked, and it's clearly divided. But in God's country, God's kingdom, God's kingdom is wherever God's people are, and God has people, it turns out, all over the world. So God's kingdom is as massive and expansive as the world has ever seen, and so your citizenship, change locations, but you stay where you are. You're a foreigner that happens to live here. And so you live here, but you're not from here. You live here, but you've been born again, born from above. And again, in this series, we're thinking together about this idea and the implications of this idea. What does it mean for you and for me to be, not to live here, but not be from here, to live as foreigners and strangers here, to be visibly different in our lives, as we live here on earth with our words with our actions with our values with our perspective and how we see each other how we see the world around us and last week we just looked at two verses first peter 1 verses 1 and 2 and so today we're going to pick up in first peter chapter 1 verse 3 this is what peter writes he says praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ in his great mercy He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. I want to stop here for just a minute before we continue. Peter uses several words, phrases that are really important that I want to slow down and notice for a minute. God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection That living hope came through the resurrection from Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never spoil, perish, or fade. These words are going to frame everything we're going to talk about this morning and really are key ideas moving forward. And so I want you to kind of think about new birth, living hope, resurrection, and inheritance. I want to not talk about them in this order. I want to talk about new birth first and then inheritance. And at the end of the sermon, I want to talk about living hope and resurrection. And to help us get started thinking about this idea of new birth and inheritance, I want you to imagine something with me for a moment. Imagine that tomorrow you are forced to pick up from what you have here and leave. You don't have time to get much together, either because of lack of money or fear for your life or persecution or a better opportunity for for your family. You're quickly getting out of town. You were forced to leave Kaufman County and go somewhere else. And in this thought experiment that we're doing together this morning, you don't have access to your bank account, so eliminate that idea. The only thing you could take with you is whatever you can quickly gather together to get into your car, if you have a car, on your way out of town. You had some money, but not much, certainly not enough to feel secure. You left town as quickly as possible, and now you find yourself hundreds of miles from home. If you think about this imagined scenario, what thoughts go through your mind now hundreds of miles from home, your cell phone battery's dead, and you left the charger because you were out of trying to get out of the house quickly? You don't know anybody where you are. And eventually I think you would begin to wonder, right? There's a reason you can't go back. You left quickly for a reason, and and whatever that reason is isn't really relevant for the scenario, but for whatever the reason is, you can't go back. And so you begin to wonder, will I ever get to return? Is there any future for me? What does my future look like? What about the land that I lived on back home if I had land? Will it be there when I get to go back, or will someone else have taken it over because they thought it was vacant because it sat empty for years and years? And if I don't have land, then really what am I going to do? I don't even have a home. I don't even have a home back there. Do I make a new home here? If I don't have access to my money, then what about my security? What about my inheritance? How do I take care of my family? How do I have plans moving forward for my children and my grandchildren? What will happen in my future? It's really hard for us to imagine a scenario like this because we feel very secure with all of our stuff. But I want you to try to imagine a scenario like this. And I want you to remember as you imagine yourself in this scenario who Peter is writing to. Peter is writing these words to people, to Christians that are scattered all over that part of the world in what is known today as modern day Turkey. And we really don't know why they're scattered. Peter doesn't tell us exactly why they're scattered. Maybe persecution, maybe because of fear of their lives back at home. Maybe they left because of better opportunities in, what, in the place that they're now living. What we know for sure is that Peter calls them exiles. They've, they've been sent out. They're scattered for a reason. They're living in a place that is not their home, and they didn't necessarily choose to be in that place. They feel like foreigners because they were foreigners. And so Peter addresses them as foreigners, and he says, hey, it's okay that you are where you are. But now I have some instructions for you about how to be God's people in that place. They felt homeless. They felt out of place. They actually left one region and went to live in another. It's possible, as I, as I shared in the example, that they had land, that they lost. What's going to happen to the place that I lived at back home? Maybe they had worked on land and plowed and built houses As you imagine this scenario, it it would be an incredibly disorienting experience, right? And so they're wondering, where is my home? What are my roots? And is there any good news in all of this? Is there any hope? And Peter says, yes, there is good news. You have been born into a new family, the family of God, and as a part of that family, you and all the other kids in the family get an inheritance. And in their case, when their securities of this life were completely gone, land and money, their birthplace, their roots, the things that kind of connected them, when they were all gone, Peter says, you can still have confidence that everything is going to be okay because you've been born into the family of God. And this is true for you as well. Knowing who you are. Knowing who you are as God's child and where your security lies enables you to live as a stranger in this world. Knowing who you are and where your security lies, not in your stuff, not in your place, not in your people. Knowing who you are as a part of God's family and where your security lies enables you to live as a stranger in this world, to be different. I want to continue to read. Look at what Peter says about this inheritance next. He says, This inheritance that you've been given as a part of God's family, as one of God's kids, it's been kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Now, what I want to, I want to stop there and say this about these words. Every human inheritance eventually... All of the human inheritances that get passed down from generation to generation to generation, they all eventually perish or spoil or fade. Some of you have actually experienced, maybe you received an inheritance from a relative that lived before you, and you've experienced that inheritance beginning to, to fade, right? It got smaller over time. And Peter says, not this one. Your inheritance is secure, it will not be used up. God's economy is not going to crash. But I want to ask you a question this morning. When is the last time that you greatly rejoiced in your inheritance? When is the last time that you greatly rejoiced in what is being kept for you in heaven? I'll be honest, I don't do it enough. I think. About it occasionally, but really, you know, from time to time, it's it's not, I don't think that's enough, right? Like, think about the words that we just sang to this song. The cross has spoken. This is your inheritance. You just sang about your inheritance, whether you realized it or not. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You, Jesus, have broken every chain. There is salvation in your name. You are my living hope. This is your inheritance. This is my inheritance. This is what you have received as a part of God's family that can never be taken away, that it will not it will not perish, spoil, or fade. When is the last time that you greatly rejoiced in this? Because this is the thing, I think, church. When we fail to greatly rejoice over our inheritance, what happens is that we forget about it, right? You and I will more deeply appreciate things that we celebrate, that we rejoice over. And so a practical question that I want to offer you this morning to think about you might want to write it down and, th- and reflect on it later this week even, is how can I greatly rejoice in my inheritance? What are some actual ways that you can greatly rejoice in what you have received from God? As I was thinking about this question, I, I started to share some examples you know, of ways that you could do this, but I, I decided that it, it's different for all of us. And so I, don't, I want you to do the reflection. I want you to do the work of thinking about how can you greatly rejoice in what you have received from God as a part of God's family, as one of God's children. Maybe it's that you, you've not really given much thought to the fact that even though you die, you will not die because death has lost its grip on you. That would be worth spending some time in reflection on this week. Maybe it's, the fact that you are God's child forever. The king of kings calls you his own. But you've been forgiven, right? Like there's, there's a whole list of things, of ways you could reflect on it. just doesn't have to, doesn't have to specifically connect to the lyrics of that song. I'd love for, for some of you to, to think about, maybe to share your answers with me, share your answers with, with each other. How can you greatly rejoice in your inheritance one one example that i want to give you of my own life for me this is for me you might re, this might resonate with you too but this is for me one of the ways that i feel like that i am able to greatly rejoice in my inheritance from god is through worship this is why why for me worship matters so much it's why being here together matters so much because i don't i don't i don't as greatly rejoice in my inheritance when i'm by myself singing a song in my car, right? Something else happens when I'm with the body of Christ. In worship, I get to express to God how grateful I am for my inheritance. So I don't care if I look like a fool raising my hands or swaying back and forth. I know Tim and Raleen don't care. For me, this is one of the reasons worship is so important. I do love to sing, but I also love expressing to God with great joy the inheritance that I've received. Amen? And there are other ways that we can express our joy, but that's one. How can you greatly rejoice in your inheritance? I want to continue in verse 6 and look at what Peter says next. He says these words, in all this, he's continuing to talk about this idea, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief joy, for you, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's a common assumption in our world that Christians don't have to suffer. I'm not saying you believe this, but it doesn't take long to look around the world and to see that this idea is everywhere. Christians don't have to suffer, right? You just look at all of the kind of like your best life now type books that are out there and it doesn't take long to realize this is an incredibly common idea in Christian circle. The idea is this, we share in God's victory but we don't have to share in his sufferings because Jesus took all the suffering for us. And in one way, the challenge with this idea is that in one way, it's sort of true. Like Jesus did take all the suffering from us for our sin, But this is different than saying he took all the suffering away, that you'll never have to go through anything hard at all. Peter says the exact opposite. Problems will come, challenges will happen. So, when they come, if someone were to think or had been taught that following Jesus exempted them from problems, I've experienced this in conversations with people. You have probably experienced this as well. If someone thinks, that following Jesus exempts them from dealing with anything hard in life. They have two options, as best I can tell. They're either mad at God because, God, I was believing in you, and still this thing happened. They still died. This outcome still happened that I wasn't wanting. I prayed, and it didn't go the way I expected. They're mad at God, or they give up on their faith because I guess it didn't work. I believed, and still all this stuff happened. And really, neither of these options deal with suffering appropriately. I want you to listen again to what Peter actually says in verse 7. He says, these, you go ahead in that next slide. He said, these have come, not working, there we go. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter says that hard things come into a person's life and that what they have the ability to do, if we will allow them to do it, is refine us. And he compares this process to what happens to gold. When pure gold is put into, when gold is put into the fire, it's not necessarily pure in whatever yet, but everything that is not Pure is burned away, right? And he says this is the same thing that happens in our lives as we walk through fire, as we walk through trials. We go through hard things and our faith is refined like gold is refined. It may not feel good in the moment, but if we hold on to our faith and we remain anchored in the promise of the resurrection, what will come out on the other side is a stronger faith. Think about it. If we remain focused on and anchored on the resurrection. It may not feel good in the moment, but what will always come out on the other side is a stronger faith. Does that make sense? If I asked you, here's an an example to kind of help you think about this. If I asked you to tell me a story about the time in your life when you realized how deeply your parents loved you, or how deeply a friend loved you, or how deeply a spouse loved you, If I asked you, tell me a time about, you know, in one of those relationships when you realized one of those people really loved you. What I think you would likely do is tell me a story about a time when that relationship was tested. When you went through something hard with them. Maybe you did it. Or maybe it was both of you. You tested the relationship. You went through something together. And you might tell me about a sacrifice that that person made for you the way you know their love is real is genuine is that you saw it tested if i asked you to tell me a story about a time that when you saw someone's faith as real and as genuine as you had ever seen anybody's faith if i asked you to tell me a time about a, a time about a person tell me about a person whose faith you saw in christ was real you would likely tell me a story about a time you saw their faith withstanding some kind of adversity You might mention some kind of sacrifice that they made. And the reason that you would do that, you would tell me those stories, is because what we know, whether or not we realize it, is that tests and trials, fire, reveal how real something is. you with me? And when people, this is so important, when people see the genuineness of our faith in Jesus Christ revealed during a hard season, you know what they do? They lean in and pay attention. you know why? Because people are used to seeing faith confessed. They are not used to seeing faith lived. When people see someone's faith as real and as authentic as they've ever seen it before, they don't run away. They're intrigued. They're in awe. They pay attention. It's strange. It's different. Why? Because people are used to seeing faith confessed, I believe. Anybody can say, I believe in Jesus Christ. It's another thing to live it out in the midst of a trial or a challenge in life. When you see faith in Christ being lived, you take notice because be, faith being lived is more rare than being confessed. And I'm just being honest. Right? This is so important. And so how do we live? How do we live out our faith when we go through trials? That's part of what Peter is talking about. And I think it goes back to what he says about trials at the end of this section, goes back to what he said at the beginning of the section, that we have a living hope that comes to us through the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus gives us a living hope. Peter can talk this way. How can Peter talk this way about suffering? Hey, when you experience trials of many kinds, know that it's actually just a refining process. How does Peter talk about suffering that way? He does, he talks about it that way because he believes the resurrection is true. He believes that Jesus is alive. He calls it living hope, which is different than dead hope. A dead Savior isn't really a Savior. He calls it living hope because he wants to emphasize that Jesus is alive. And we, we say that, we know that, we sing about that, we read about that, so it's very common for us, but I don't know that we think about the significance of that enough. Jesus was raised from the dead. His buried body began to breathe. We've never seen that happen before. And what Peter believed was that if Jesus was alive and was raised from the dead, then you can be certain that you will be raised from the dead, that your future is secure, that your inheritance will be there at the end. And so there is an eternal promise, but living hope is not just a guarantee for eternity. Living hope impacts us right now in this life. Being birthed into this living hope impacts our lives now by empowering you to respond in ways that are different than what people expect. Think about this in your life. Living hope. When you have a living hope, when you believe that the resurrection is real, when you believe that Jesus is alive, it empowers you by God's Spirit. That same Spirit, Paul says in another place, that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you and me. And that spirit enables us to respond to situations in our lives in ways that are different from what everyone expects. There are lots of examples that I could give. We could be here all day, but I'm just going to give two. Here's the first one. One of the ways that living hope empowers us to respond in ways that are different than what everybody expects is in grief and death. I want you to listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is spoken by a guy who believes that the resurrection is real. He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Paul, every time, this is an aside, every time he talks about death, I think, maybe there might be one or two where he doesn't, but almost every time he talks about death, he uses this word sleep as if to say, It's not the end. They're just resting. There's another story on the other side of death. So he says, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so, because we believe that, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Paul is, what is he saying? He's saying we live differently because we have a living hope. And I want you to hear me clearly. He doesn't say you don't grieve. We grieve. Christians grieve. But Christians who understand their living hope, the living hope that they have, that their inheritance is secure with God, our grief is always anchored in resurrection, in living hope. And I'm telling you guys, after 20 years of doing and attending a lot of funerals, that's just sort of a thing. I didn't, when I felt called to ministry as a 17-year-old, if you would have told me some of your close friends were going to be funeral home directors, I would have been like, I'm out, right? Like, I did not think fully through the whole like ministry thing that funerals would be a regular part of your, your job. But I'm telling you, after 20 years of doing and attending a lot of funerals, there is a notable difference in how a funeral and a death are processed where the person that has died was a Christ follower, and maybe the majority of the crowd that comes to attend are Christ followers, compared to a funeral where someone did not have a professed faith in Jesus Christ, a professed relationship with Jesus. You've probably experienced this yourself, attending some funerals over the years. Why would someone sing worship songs at a funeral? often because it's the request of the person that died. And you might be so used to it that you don't even think about this, but there is a marked difference in the two responses that happen in a person of faith and a person who does not have faith. We grieve, but we do grieve with hope. We can be sad and celebrate that they are with Jesus and no longer in this body. This is just the first example of a way that having living hope empowers us to respond in ways that are different than what people expect because what people expect is that you're going to grieve like everybody else grieves. And again, hear me clearly. Grief is real and we need to pay attention to it and not, let, not just bury it, right? You need to, we need to deal and process with all of those things. I am on a journey myself, as all of you know, dealing with my own grief in the loss of my dad. So I'm not saying or denying at all that it's something that is real and needs to be addressed and talked about, but I also believe a hundred percent, that my, my dad will live again, and that all the people that you love who have died, who died in Christ, will live again. So that's one example. The other example that I'll share of how having a living hope empowers us to respond in ways that people don't expect is how we think about and extend forgiveness. Do you remember this picture Botham Jean was killed by Amber Geiger. And during the sentencing phase of the trial, Botham's brother, Brant, was making a victim statement. In an unexpected twist, he asked the judge if he could speak directly to Amber, and then he asked permission to, to, from the judge to get up and to give Amber Geiger a hug. And the judge allowed it to everyone's surprise. And every major news network covered this story and told this story. There were tears in the courtroom. The judge was crying. The judge went back into her chamber and got a Bible and gave it to Amber Geiger. And this is the thing that captures me about this story. The world saw this story. And for a lot of people, it was very odd. How in the world could someone who has just lost their brother embrace the killer like that? But I don't know about you, but when I saw this, I didn't respond that way. And I don't think many Christ followers did. You know what I did? I think I actually said it out loud. I think I said, wow, first. But then I said, yep, that is what it looks like. Right? Because when someone has a living hope, they don't respond in the way that people expect them to. How is it possible for someone to show love to someone that way, to someone like this? Because Brant had been birthed into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so moving forward, where does our ability to be different come from? How do we live as foreigners in this world that is not our home? It starts with knowing who you are. You are God's child. You have been born into God's family. And, what, and, then, and then it goes from knowing who you are to knowing what you have been given, an inheritance that is secure, and knowing that all of that is anchored always in understanding that we have a hope that is living, that Jesus is alive today. Though you have not seen him, Peter says, you love him. And you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, citizens of the kingdom of God, this week, may you live into your identity as a child of God. May you live here with an awareness that you aren't from here. And may that knowledge cause you to greatly rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge this morning that we want to be people who are living lives that reflect the values that we believe because of the living hope that we have, that we respond, that we respond in ways that people don't expect to situations and circumstances that happen in our lives, so that when people encounter us in those moments, they go, wow, that wasn't what I expected them to do. They were more kind or gracious or forgiving or loving than I've seen before. And may all of that bring honor and glory to your name. May, it draw, may, may through our actions, may you draw people to Jesus. May we through our lives make Christ more attractive to the world around us in our words, in our actions, our behaviors. God, will you empower us through your spirit today? to not only hear but to believe these words that we've just spent time thinking about this morning. Will you help us to live as citizens of your kingdom into our identity as your children with a full awareness that we are not from here, but we have an inheritance that is being kept in heaven for us. And may you, God, help us in this knowledge to greatly rejoice in the good news that we've received. We pray through Christ, our brother, our Savior, and our friend. And the church said, amen. Would you stand with me this morning?